You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we wrap up our series on British explorer Richard Francis Burton. Last time, we saw Burton transition from explorer to diplomat and traveler, and in the process, his feud with John Hanning Speak would come to a close with the death of Speak in a hunting accident. No one was happy with the way things turned out, and Burton would never forgive Speak, even in death, for what he considered a betrayal. The year was 1865, and the 44-year-old Burton took the post of consul in the city of Santos, a port city in Brazil, not far from Sao Paulo, about 200 miles or 320 kilometers, down the South American coast from Rio de Janeiro. Burton's wife Isabel would come with him on this posting. The couple made their home in Sao Paulo due to the healthier climate. It was a typical move by Burton, as he really didn't care about being the consul. He would leave the day-to-day affairs to an associate. As with our last episode, we are going to find Burton is a restless soul. He will rarely stay in one spot for more than a month and venture all over South America. During his three years in Brazil, he would explore diamond and gold mines in the region of Minas Gerais, travel 1,300 miles or 2,100 kilometers down the Sao Francisco River on a raft, cross the Andes Mountains and visit Chile and Peru, and travel to the battlefields of the bloody war between Paraguay and her neighbors. However, all of this travel will not equate to exploration. Other than Burton being the first person to sail all the way down the San Francisco River, shooting rapids no one had ever dared, there will be no geographical discoveries, no great deeds. In addition to all of this, Burton had his work as a consul. Plus, he would write, working on translations of Hindu folktales, the Arabian Nights, and the Lusiadis, an epic Portuguese poem written by Luiz Vaz de Camões. Of course, he collected lots and lots of notes, which would end up in various books. The time in Brazil was not easy, mostly due to the climate. Extreme rain, heat, and humidity led to disease and illness. Both Burton and Isabel would, at times, get sick. Isabel had cholera, malaria, and a variety of ailments, some as bad as Burton had ever endured. Burton's sufferings included malaria, hepatitis, and a lung infection. In 1868, he would be afflicted with an illness that rendered him almost unable to speak or eat due to intense pain. The pain was so severe, he would literally scream for 15 minutes straight. He would endure this for 17 days, and Isabel thought he was going to die. She would write, quote, He is awfully thin and gray and looks about 60. He is quite gaunt, and it is sad to look at him, end quote. Burton, by the way, was 47, not 60. I want to point out that Burton's health was not aided by his drinking. It would get bad during his time in Brazil and lead to bouts of depression. 
I want to note that without Isabel, it's unlikely Burton would have survived these years. She indulged him, but she was also fiercely protective of him. She managed the couple's finances and home and never stopped promoting him to friends as well as colleagues. A sidetrack about the couple. They would never have any children, although both had indicated the desire. And regarding Isabel, she was a very polarizing woman. She was seen as clever and intelligent, but often overbearing and lacking in social graces. I've seen the words foolish and silly used to describe her. Some of that, I believe, is because Isabel was unwilling to be a proper, quiet, and submissive wife. Another reason for the unkind perceptions of her were the causes she championed. The first was her religion. She never wavered from trying to convert others to the Catholic Church, so much so that it annoyed some, and at times, embarrassed her husband. Her other great cause was her crusade against cruelty to animals. She detested seeing animals mistreated, and she was known to admonish people in the streets when they whipped their horses or kicked a dog. She formed anti-cruelty to animal societies wherever she went. I want to note that despite these perceptions of Isabel, Burton loved his wife, even as he selfishly runs off on one crazy adventure after another, leaving her to worry about his fate. Friends and acquaintances comment how devoted he was to her. To be honest, I don't think Burton wanted a conventional wife. He wanted a friend and a companion, and they shared many interests, chief amongst them literature. Burton encouraged his wife to write, and she would eventually publish several books about her own travels. These books weren't great, or even good, but they demonstrate that Isabel wasn't just Burton's sidekick. Also, she would become more and more important to getting Burton's own books published. She would help edit them, get them off to the publisher on time, things like that. Anyhow, sidetrack done. While in Brazil, one of the main highlights for the Burtons were trips to Rio, where they enjoyed the high society of the large cosmopolitan city. The Burtons became friends with the Emperor and Empress of Brazil. The Emperor was keenly interested in scientific study, and he loved to hear about Burton's time as an explorer and traveler. While in Brazil, Burton would travel extensively and was often gone months at a time. Once he planned a four-day excursion to go searching for a legendary sea serpent that inhabited the coastal region. Four days would turn into a month, with Burton spending some of the time clinging to his boat after it overturned. One issue constantly hanging over Burton's head was money. As he got older, he became more and more concerned about financial security. Thus, he would invest in a lead mine, and as noted, go investigate the diamond and gold mines of the region. Nothing would ever come of these endeavors. By the way, there is one story where Burton discovered several small rubies on a stretch of land. He was told to buy the land, which would have cost him no more than 50 pounds but Burton refused, knowing that he would be cheating the current owner, an old woman. Anyhow, the truth is that Burton was coming to see himself as a failure. He had lost his army commission, his exploration of Africa had ended up making him well-known, but not necessarily respected, and certainly not wealthy. And his time as a diplomat was being spent at posts that were considered unhealthy and dead ends. This led Burton to drink more and more, and he exhibited clear signs of depression. It was for Burton a very dark time. Wilford Blunt, an English poet and writer, was distressed after meeting with Burton, saying, quote, He seemed to me, then, already a broken man physically, nor did he impress me very strongly on his intellectual side. End quote. Burton needed to get away from Brazil, and he would do so mostly due to the efforts of his wife, Isabel. Isabel would appeal to the Foreign Office, some say Badger, for a new position for her husband. Thankfully, Isabel's family were friendly with Lord Frederick Stanley, the head of the Foreign Office. It was at this time that Burton would be offered the position of counsel for the city of Damascus in Syria. The post was ideal, on paper. Burton knew the lands, the people, the language, the customs, and the religion. Plus, the job came with a pay raise, and the climate was much better. Burton was thrilled. If things went well in Damascus, perhaps it would lead to bigger posts, such as Cairo or Istanbul. 
He would depart Brazil in April of 1869 and arrive in England on June 1st. Now, Burton's job in Damascus was pretty much doomed from the start, although it was not all his fault. To start with, there was a new government taking power in Great Britain, and they were not thrilled about Burton's appointment. We can't forget, Burton had upset a lot of people over the years. He had been critical of government policy and certain individuals. Plus, the Christian missionaries were worried about Burton, who was known to be a Muslim. And the tough thing for Burton was that he was not a political animal, the kind of guy who knew how to play the greater game of life in the foreign office. In a lot of ways, he was in over his head, even naive. This means some people will have it out for Burton, and others were simply concerned about such an undisciplined individual going to a spot that required tact and nuance. A big part of a consul's job was to not upset people, and we can't forget Burton is often very good at upsetting people. So Burton would spend some time in France recovering from hepatitis before heading to Damascus to take on his post in October, Isabel joining him a bit later. Now, Burton would work hard to balance the various people and factions in Damascus. There were 14 Christian sects, for example. And for the most part, he did a good job. He was fair and measured and worked to understand the situations. As always, Burton took ample time to explore the region, dig through the ruins, meet various tribes, that sort of thing. But there were other forces at work that would undermine him. The primary issue was Mohammad Rashid Pasha, the Turkish viceroy of Syria. All of the things that you would think would make Burton a good counsel, such as knowing the language, religion, culture, and willingness to travel and learn, were the things the viceroy disliked in a council. Rashid Pasha didn't want British agents wandering off into the desert or talking to tribesmen or religious groups. What the man saw was a spy, a danger. This region was a part of the Ottoman Empire, but that control was tenuous. The Turks feared rebellion in these regions, as well as foreign intervention. They wanted a hands-off consul who kept his nose out of things. And thus the Viceroy immediately began to undermine Burton. The other big issue were Burton's own colleagues. The British ambassador in Istanbul, Sir Henry Elliot, disliked Burton. But Elliot never revealed this, always playing at being Burton's ally. But like Rashid Pasha, he was maneuvering to be rid of Burton before he even arrived. Anyhow, in Damascus, Burton would do Burton-like things. He'd write, he'd travel, frequently, going to places such as Palmyra or ruins in the desert. He often took Isabel with him. From April 18, 1870, until August of 1871, Burton didn't spend a single full month at the consulate or at his duties. This included 14 separate trips, totaling 183 days, just gallivanting about. This time was one of the best for the Burtons. They thrived in Damascus and enjoyed their life there. Burton was an eccentric celebrity, and his ability to actually interact with the people made him popular. Also, he had curbed his alcohol and opium use. However, Burton's removal was not far off. His frequent absences were a source of concern to his superiors, and Burton's wanderings only upset Rashid Pasha, who complained to Burton's bosses, adding in all sorts of unfounded rumors and gossip. I also want to note that this was not just a behind-the-scenes campaign to be rid of Burton. This was a very active and potentially deadly game that was being played. There was once an ambush planned, with 200 riders sent to capture Burton and his companions. Burton would recognize what was up and evade the ambush. Regarding all the rumors being passed around, Isabel Burton was the source of many of them. Burton's wife cut a bold figure in Damascus. She had no problem talking up the Catholic faith, a big no-no to some, and then there was her anti-cruelty-to-animal crusade. As I noted earlier, she was known to berate men who beat or whip their horses and pack animals, she was said to have, more than once, strike a man with a riding stick for such an offense. Well, all of these things would be blown out of proportion by Burton's enemies. 
Isabel Burton had killed two men for refusing to salute her. She was forcing people to convert to Catholicism. She was anti-Semitic. She was desecrating mosques. The Burtons were acting like the emperor and empress of Damascus. You get the idea. It would then get out of hand when, in April, when in Nazareth, a man would try and slip into Isabel Burton's tent. The man, who was a Coptic Christian, was caught, beaten, and chased off. Well, as this was happening, a large group of people coming out of a Greek church saw the incident and decided to harass the Europeans. There were some stones thrown and some people injured. Burton would fire off his pistol into the air to chase off the attackers. Burton thought so little of the incident, he didn't even report it to his bosses. Well, Burton's enemies would seize on the confrontation. Soon there were reports that Burton's party had attacked children, broken into a church, and even shot a priest. Burton was stunned when he read the reports. How could something like this have been twisted so horribly? Remember, it was his job not to upset the locals, not to cause problems. Burton should have, immediately after the incident, sent a full and detailed report about what happened to his superiors. But to Burton, that was a waste of time. That's what lesser men did to cover their butts. He shouldn't have to do that for every petty little confrontation he engaged in. The situation would fester in the background while Burton, again, took off exploring. This time he went to meet with a desert tribe. The Turkish viceroy would pounce on this, saying Burton was stirring up the tribes in revolt. No matter the reality of the situation, by the end of May, the foreign office was tired of all the complaints and decided to sack Burton. He would get his notice on August 16th. There was no hearing, no explanation, no opportunity to defend himself. Burton just got a message saying he was gone. It was, frankly, insulting. This was a terrible moment for Burton. He felt he was doing a good job in Damascus, and then, suddenly, he had the carpet pulled out from under him. The truth is that Burton just wasn't that attuned to the Machiavellian world of the Foreign Office. It was often a complex and delicate game. One needed to play many sides, understand the subtle and not-so-subtle signs, and know who was your enemy and who was your friend. He just didn't have the soft skills needed for an important diplomatic post. And so the Burtons would head back to England, disappointed and humiliated. And even more important, Burton knew that good posts were not in his future. His career was, at best, at a standstill. At worst, it was over. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The upcoming time in England would be another rough phase for the Burtons. Money was tight, although it was not like they were destitute. The Burtons lived frugally, and Richard was always on the lookout for a way to make some money. They would, however, never be without company. London society adored the eccentric couple. 
They had invites virtually every day to galas and parties and the like. At one party, which was being attended by the Prince of Wales, Burton was asked by the host to come dressed and in character as an Arab sheik. Burton complied and fooled everyone, although the Prince of Wales had been given the heads up. Byron Farwell, in his biography of Burton, would say this of the moment, quote, The disguises with which he had ferreted out oriental secrets and done great deeds was now only a parlor trick, end quote. Burton had hoped to land a job in Tehran, but no luck. In the summer of 1872, he would even travel to Iceland to do research on sulfur mining. It was another scheme to gain a quick fortune. Nothing would come out of it except another book. However, it should be noted that Burton did have friends, and the English press took up his cause. As the word of the way Burton had been treated by the government was made public, there was some outcry. Burton was the noble and brave Englishman, treated shabbily due to the accusations of foreigners. During all of this, Isabel would campaign tirelessly to get her husband a new job, and it would eventually pay off when Burton was offered the post of consul at the port of Trieste on the Adriatic Sea in modern-day Italy. The pay was £600 a year, which Isabel accepted on her husband's behalf. It was unlikely a better opportunity would present itself in the near or distant future. If you look at a map of the Italian boot, Trieste is in the upper right side, today on the border of Italy and Slovenia. It's about 70 miles, or 110 kilometers, east of Venice. Trieste was called a free port, but at the time it was part of the Austrian crown. The city had a population of 130,000 and was a nice, quiet, respectable place, but it wasn't important. Now, Burton was disappointed by the lack of stature that Trieste held. He was, after all, one of the finest Arabic scholars in the Western world. Why waste him on the Adriatic Sea? Well, many believe that Burton was offered the post as a bit of an apology for how he'd been run out of Damascus and a way to keep him out of trouble. Trieste was not a demanding post, which meant that Burton's penchant for travel and exploration could be tolerated. And since it was sleepy and calm, with no issues of religious or ethnic strife, Burton could not get into any real trouble. It was free of the backstabbing ways found in the more turbulent regions of the East. And so, while he didn't recognize this at the time, it was a gift— the weather was tolerable, and it would allow Burton to travel and write. Burton would spend the next 18 years as counsel in Trieste. For much of the time, he and Isabel would take over the top floor of an apartment building, covering an entire block, 27 rooms. A journalist who visited Burton described their home as an amazing collection of artifacts from all over the world. There were 8,000 books in dozens of languages, guns, pistols, spears, swords, masks, and scientific instruments. There were oriental hangings, Bedouin rugs, and dishes and goblets and trinkets from Asia and Africa. Everything was one of a kind, as Burton despised mass-produced products. Burton had 11 different tables covered in writing materials, one for each project he was working on at the time. He'd move from one subject to another as inspiration, or writer's block, struck him. The Burtons, especially in the early years, were active, exploring just about any place within 100 miles of Trieste. They visited isolated mountain people, explored caves, and climbed mountains. They also took trips to all the major cities throughout Italy and Europe, such as Rome, Florence, Venice, Paris, and Berlin, and there were occasional trips back to England. Burton stayed active by practicing regularly at the local fencing school, and he swam when the weather permitted. And in time, the couple would establish a retreat in a village up in the mountains about an hour away. It was an inn where they had permanent rooms. It was here that Burton would do much of his work on his translation of the Arabian Nights. And while Trieste was a sleepy town, they loved to entertain visitors. Burton looked like an old prizefighter with scars on his dark face, the latter courtesy of so many years in the sun. He also grew this huge mustache. I mean huge. It was almost ridiculous. 
Anyhow, he was still tall and commanding, if slowed by gout and other ailments. But he could command a room, the guy with a million stories, many so outrageous it was hard to know if Burton was telling the truth or not. One story I'll share was when he and Isabel were hosting a tea party for the highest society of Trieste, Burton came into the room with a manuscript in hand, as if this was what he had been working on. He would set it down and then wander off, knowing everyone would want to see what it was all about. He had replaced the top page of the manuscript with a new one, which identified the book as The History of Farting. Ah, you gotta love Wacky Burton. Despite all the things he had been through, I don't want you to forget that he had a wicked and sometimes warped sense of humor. So, as I said, Burton didn't spend a lot of time in Trieste. He simply left a lot of the official work to an associate while he traveled. Here are some of the highlights of Burton's various travels and expeditions. First, he would take Isabel to India, something she adored. Those early years were so important to Burton's life, and her visiting the region made her feel like she could share those times with him. It also allowed Burton to investigate some abandoned diamond mines. He thought the mines had been given up on too early and would try and entice Vesters into giving them another go. It was, however, all too vague and no one would bite. The trip would net a book for Burton, as well as Isabel. Second, Burton would conduct two rather extensive operations to mine for gold in Midian, which is in northwestern Arabia, along the eastern shores of the Red Sea. This happened in 1877-78. There were rumors of old Roman gold mines in the desert that had been swirling for ages, and Burton was always a sucker for gold. The enterprise was not an insignificant investment. However, while Burton brought along an engineer, he didn't have a metallurgist or experienced prospector. In many ways, this was like old times for Burton. He was back leading an expedition into an area he understood and appreciated. But Burton was not a geologist, and in the end, he would only find some old ruins and catacombs and a lot of rocks. The project would be a financial bust for all those involved, although Burton would write a couple more books chronicling the endeavors. Our third expedition also involves gold. In 1881, Burton would sail to the Gold Coast, which is today Ghana, on the western coast of Africa, on behalf of the Guinea Coast Gold Mining Company, to identify mining opportunities. While Burton would come away enthusiastic, saying there was not only gold, but diamonds, rubies, and other gems. He suggested hydraulic sluicing to extract the gold. And you know what? Burton was right. The area was rich in gold. However, a company engineer would follow up on Burton's report and disagree as to the feasibility of setting up any mines. It would take 20 years for someone to mine the gold in the area that Burton had investigated, but when they did, it was mined exactly how he proposed. So, no gold again for Burton, but it did get him, you guessed it, another book. Side note here, Burton suggested to the British government that he be made governor of the Gold Coast and given half a regiment of West Indian troops. If that was done, he could make the region a major gold producer. His idea was politely turned down. The last thing Great Britain needed was a gold-obsessed Burton marching around Africa with his own personal army. A fourth endeavor was one that, almost, turned into quite the adventure. In October of 1882, Burton received a telegram directing him to proceed to the Gaza region of the Middle East. Two British agents, on a secret mission in the Sinai Desert, were killed by native tribesmen, and a third, Professor Edward Palmer, was missing. Burton's job was to organize a rescue mission to, hopefully, find Palmer, who was an old friend. This was exactly the kind of thing that Burton would have loved, something exciting and important. But as I said, it was almost an adventure. And that's because evidence of Palmer's death was discovered, ending the mission. Burton had only gotten to Cairo. The final story about Burton and his travels would have been huge if it had happened. Burton would be offered by General Charles Gordon the governorship of Darfur in what today is western Sudan. This was a volatile area and would require an immense commitment and risk on Burton's part. Burton would turn down the job even though it more than doubled his salary. 
Gordon would tempt Burton later by improving the pay to 3,000 pounds a year and then 5,000. Burton said no each time. He didn't want to leave Isabel, and his health was just not that good. Plus, he was skeptical of British policy in the area. And it turns out Burton was right. The region would soon be engulfed in rebellion, and the man who ended up with the job, Rudolf Slayton, an Austrian officer, would be defeated in the Mahdist War. Slayton would be captured and spend 11 years in captivity before finally escaping in 1895. General Gordon, by the way, would die in the Siege of Khartoum in 1885. So that concludes Burton's travels in his lifetime. There will be journeys back to England, around the Mediterranean, and Europe, but Burton's life as an explorer was done. A big reason for all of this would be age and health. Burton would have a tumor on his groin area removed, which laid him up for months, and he was constantly plagued by gout and back pains. As for Isabel, she would suffer again from cholera in 1874, but would recover. However, in the 1880s, she would begin to suffer through a variety of ailments, which would ultimately turn out to be cancer. And with that, I want to transition to the discussion of Burton's last great adventure, and that was as a writer and translator. Now, Burton had published dozens of books in his life, but none had really made him much money, but that was going to change. I've mentioned that Burton had, for 30 years, been toying with the idea of translating some Eastern texts. A big one was A Thousand and One Nights, which was a collection of anonymous Middle Eastern folk tales. Some of these stories were already known, such as Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, but there were many others that had not been translated, often because they dealt with sexuality and other adult themes. They were just too edgy for Western audiences and publishers. Anyhow, in the early 1880s, Burton would begin collecting and translating all the stories in earnest. Years earlier, Burton had worked adapting the tales with his friend, Dr. John Steinhauser. Burton would translate the poetry, Steinhauser the Prose. Unfortunately, Steinhauser had died in 1866, and most of his work had not been saved. And thus, Burton would end up working extensively with Orientalist and writer Foster Fitzgerald Arbuthnot to do all the translations. Now, the publication of the work would have a couple of serious obstacles. First, it was found that writer John Payne was getting ready to put out a translation of the Arabian Nights. Neither Burton nor Payne had realized the other was working on a translation. Burton considered stopping his work, but after speaking with Payne, he decided to press forward. Payne's version would be published first. However, he told Burton he would limit his run to 500 copies, plus it was not fully annotated. Thus, Burton would push on with his version, vowing to make it better than Payne's. By the way, Burton felt that Payne had done a good job. He admired the man, and the two would become friends. Burton would even take whole sections of Payne's translations and use them in his own version. The other major issue that faced Burton was the dreaded British censor. There were strict laws about publishing pornographic materials, and this certainly qualified as such. Burton could easily be arrested for publishing the book. And then there was the risk of simply being ostracized by English society and the foreign office. He was putting his career at risk as well. But Burton had a what-the-heck attitude at this point in his life. He was 63 years old, and he felt that he didn't have a lot to lose. To try and slip the book past the censors, Burton and Arbuthnot would form the Kamashastar Society. This was a private group dedicated to studying Oriental culture. At least, that is what they said. The two men were the only official members of the society. With this society as a sort of cover, Burton would publish the book, saying it was for private subscribers only. It was translated by AFF and BFR, meaning Arbuthnot and Burton. And thus, if people protested or the censors decided to prosecute them, they could say it was a private society that published the book. It was for people interested in Oriental literature, not smut. 1001 Nights, a.k.a. The Arabian Nights, would thus be published beginning in 1884 in 10 volumes, plus a six-volume supplement, over a roughly two-year period. 
Volume 1 was dedicated to John Steinhauser. The resulting work would be Burton's greatest achievement as a writer. It was 30-plus years in the making and an absolute labor of love. In a lot of ways, Burton's translation of the Arabian Nights forced him to focus. His own books are packed with information, too much information. In Burton's books, he struggled to understand what is interesting and worthwhile, and so he just puts in everything. With the translation of the Arabian Nights, Burton was forced to stick to the script, and he did so beautifully. Byron Farwell, in his biography of Burton, said this of the man, quote, Burton's true literary genius lay in the difficult art of being able to make translations and adaptations from obscure and difficult languages come vividly to life in English, end quote. Edward Rice, another of Burton's biographers, would add this, quote, In Burton's hands, the translation is unsurpassed, though others have tried versions of the Arabic. His text is unrivaled and the poetry superb. The notes and annotations that filled the volumes would alone make the reputation of many other men, and the final essays dealing with the knights and the social and religious conditions in which they appeared are masterpieces of their kind. End quote. Lofty praise, and deservedly so. The translation was extremely difficult. The stories were drawn from more than 20 different languages, and the poetry, Burton's part, was the most difficult to translate. And that's because, first, there was a lot of poetry in the text, more than 10,000 lines of it. And in the translations, he had to convey not just the words, but the structure and emotions and meaning. This is not easy. Burton's version of the Arabian Nights is, today, considered a classic, and it is viewed by many to be the definitive version of the stories. Anyhow, regarding the publication, Burton hoped to get a thousand subscribers, paying roughly two and a half pounds for each volume, which was wildly expensive for the time. Instead of a thousand, they would get two thousand. From the get-go, the Arabian Nights was a commercial and critical success. And to top it off, the British censors didn't come knocking at Burton's door, even though the book was packed with all sorts of depictions of sex and sexual themes. The publication would only enhance the reputation of Ruffy and Dick, the moniker Burton had been given in his youth. A couple of notes about the Arabian Nights. First, it's been said that Burton would make his wife, Isabel, promise to never read the publication. He knew that she would not approve of the book's sexuality. If that's true, we really don't know, but considering how involved she was in helping publish all of Burton's books, it's hard to believe that she didn't read at least some of the content. Plus, she would later work with an editor to publish a clean version of the book, which would be a flop. It turns out that people wanted the naughty parts. The other note is that when Burton finished The Arabian Nights, Isabel reported that her husband was saddened. She would say, quote, He loved the work and he was sorry when it was finished, end quote. However, Burton would publish other books, and not just of his adventures and travels. Through the newly established society, he would publish more sexually-oriented translations, including the Kama Sutra and the Perfume Garden. The public ate them up, and Richard Burton's reputation only grew. Burton would also do some translations of Portuguese poet Louis de Camões, a man Burton greatly admired. Camões is considered one of the great lyric poets of the 16th century, and is the Portuguese equivalent of Shakespeare. So, moving on from Burton's work as a translator, I have a few items I want to talk about before we come to the end of our story. First, in February 1886, he and Isabel were in Tangier, Morocco, Burton not at his job, as usual. Burton was waiting for word about a potential new post, that of Minister of Morocco. Morocco would be a big step up from Trieste. As he was waiting, Burton would get a surprising telegram. He had been made Knight Commander of the Order of St. Michael and St. George. He was now Sir Richard Francis Burton, KCMG. Burton immediately told everyone that he would not accept the position. It was a totally Burton-like thing to do turning up his nose at the establishment. But in reality, he probably loved it. It was a measure of recognition for all he had done for Great Britain. Plus, he had hopes for the job in Morocco, and turning down a knighthood was probably not the wisest move if he wanted that. 
Anyhow, the Morocco job would never materialize, and Burton would head back to Trieste. Meanwhile, he and Isabel's health was failing them. Later that year, Burton would have some fits and convulsions, causing him to request full retirement from Her Majesty's government, despite being five years short of retirement age for the Foreign Service, which was 70. He cited ill health and long service to Her Majesty's government. The request was refused. And so it was back to Trieste for Burton. He and Isabel traveled when they could, but Burton always had to have a doctor with him. Otherwise, the couple would spend the next few years in Trieste, waiting for Burton to turn 70 so that they could retire. Burton continued to write, and he loved it when old friends and colleagues visited him, and people relished hearing the million stories that Burton had in his head. In 1889, the Burtons were visited by famed explorer Henry Morton Stanley and his wife. It was Stanley who had proven speak correct and Burton wrong about the Nile's source. But Burton had a high regard for Stanley, and the men enjoyed their time together. Stanley's wife, Dorothy, would ask Burton for his autograph. He happily obliged, signing in both Arabic and English. The Stanleys encouraged Burton to write his autobiography, and he would say it was already underway. In truth, Burton had been working on his autobiography for years, with Isabel transcribing his thoughts. Of the meeting of the two explorers, Stanley would say of Burton, quote, What a grand man, one of the real great ones of England he might have been if he had not been cursed with cynicism. End quote. Otherwise, the next big thing Burton was working on was an updated version of the scented garden, which he wanted to call the perfumed garden. The book was a 15th century Arabic sex manual and work of erotic literature. Isabel was appalled by the book, but Burton was excited about its publication, saying, quote, It is the crown of my life. End quote. On October 19, 1890, Burton announced that the perfumed garden would be finished the next day. He considered it a monumental achievement. However, the next morning at 4 a.m., Burton woke with various pains in his body. Isabel would call for his doctor, Frederick Baker. Baker would give Burton some medicine to comfort him, but 30 minutes later, Burton began to struggle to breathe. While Isabel frantically tried to get a priest, Burton would say, quote, My God, I am a dead man, end quote. And then he would die, result of a heart attack. However, Isabel Burton insisted her husband was not dead. Yes, his heart had stopped, but that didn't mean his brain had stopped. At least, that is what she argued. Isabel was a deeply superstitious woman and a devout Catholic, and more than anything, she wanted her beloved husband to die in the grace of the Catholic Church. And so, she would insist Burton was still alive until a priest arrived, which was like an hour or two later. The priest would then perform the last rites on Burton. Isabel would have Burton's religion marked as Catholic on his death certificate. And so, Richard Francis Burton was thus, officially, dead. The date was October 20, 1890. He was 69 years old. He died four months short of the retirement he very much was looking forward to. As for the whole Catholic thing, Isabel had gotten her husband to sign a document stating he had converted to Catholicism. Different sources say different things about this document. One says that Burton only signed something that said, if he was incapacitated and wanted to become a Catholic, he only had to make the sign of the cross. Isabel would tell others that the document was him saying he converted. It was all very fishy. No matter, as you can imagine, Burton's friends and family were horrified by the supposed conversion. In reality, Burton had, for the most part, given up on religion. He still practiced as a Muslim, but that came and went throughout his last 20 to 30 years of life. Most of his close friends considered Burton an atheist. If Burton had signed any sort of document about becoming a Catholic, it was likely to keep Isabel from nagging him about the subject. Isabel's gymnastics about Burton's death are almost laughable, but she was desperate to see him in a better afterlife. Anyhow, Burton's body would be embalmed and readied for transport back to England. The undertaker who prepared the body found it riddled with scars, the, quote, witness of a hundred fights, end quote. Sir Richard Francis Burton would be given two funerals, 
The first was in Trieste, where the locals turned out in great numbers to honor the famous and eccentric man who had been their neighbor for nearly 20 years, and the Austrian military provided a fine funeral. Everyone was happy. A funeral in London was to follow. However, before that, the legendary 16 Days of Destruction would begin. Okay, what followed was not really called that, but I think it works. For the next 16 days, Isabel would comb through the Burton home, gather up at least 30 years of notebooks, journals, papers, books, letters, and manuscripts, and start burning them. It was estimated that Burton had about 40 books in various stages of production, including the perfume garden, which was supposed to have been finished the day of his death. Burton had reportedly been offered £6,000 for the publishing rights. Isabel, however, would burn it, saying that Burton's ghost had appeared to her three times, insisting that it be done. While some things would survive, who knows what ended up as ashes? What did his personal journals reveal about his time exploring in Africa? Did he have anything that discussed his world while traipsing about India in the guise of Mirza Abdullah? What about the autobiography Burton had been working on? Considering how much the guy wrote, the possibilities were endless, but most of it was lost. Word of Isabel's actions would be met with outrage, not just amongst family and friends, but with the press and the public. Burton's physician, Dr. Frederick Baker, who had spent many hours with Burton over the past few years, said the perfume garden would have been Burton's magnum opus. So people ask, why did Isabel burn all of her husband's stuff? Well, to her, it was to protect her husband. Who knows what was written in all those notes? Burton's obsession with sex meant that there were things that might have smeared her husband's good name. Isabel wanted Richard to be seen as a proud and brave Christian, one who had sacrificed and worked hard for his country. It's possible she just burned it all without knowing all of its content. Anyhow, Isabel would have all their belongings shipped back to England and arrange his next funeral. She looked into having him buried at Westminster Abbey, but that wasn't going to happen. Plus, she wanted him in a Catholic cemetery. She would settle on a very odd place, the Cemetery of St. Mary Magdalene Roman Catholic Church in a London suburb, which would only ignite more controversy. No one believed Burton was a Catholic, and they said he would be appalled at the location of his burial. Burton's family was so upset by it all, only one relative, a cousin, would attend the funeral. Isabel would raise nearly 700 pounds to build a 12 by 18 foot mausoleum to house Burton's coffin. The tomb was made of marble and stone and built in the shape of a Bedouin tent, or at least how an Englishman or English woman would think a Bedouin tent looked. It's still pretty amazing. Go look at photos of it. I put links on the website, explorerspodcast.com. It's one of the strangest tombs I have ever seen. It looks like a real tent. If you were looking at it in low light, you'd be, what the heck? Anyhow, the other odd thing is the cemetery is in a working-class neighborhood, so all the other tombstones are simple and normal. But not Burton's. It's this huge tent. It's even got a window in the back so you can look in. So, Richard Francis Burton was dead and buried. But his reputation would keep his memory alive. His wife was vilified by the press and the public. They attacked her Catholicism and said she had destroyed the life's work of a great Englishman. Isabel didn't help herself by holding seances in Burton's tomb. Anyhow, Isabel would write her own biography of Burton, which was published in 1893. It is not considered very good, as Isabel gave us a thoroughly sanitized version of her husband. I'm guessing Isabel incorporated some of the information she had transcribed from the autobiography Burton had been working on, but she would have tamed things down and cut out anything that bordered on controversy. Isabel would continue to fight to preserve her husband's name, and no one can dispute her devotion to him. When Madame Tussauds Wax Museum asked to make a statue of her husband, Isabel would provide them with Burton's real clothing from Arabia to clad the figure. Anyhow, Isabel Burton would die on March 21, 1896, succumbing to cancer at the age of 65. She was buried with her husband. 
Her influence on her husband's life cannot be understated, and her burnings of Burton's writings have made her a villain to many Burton aficionados. Isabel's own autobiography would be published the following year. So you know what? That's it. The life of British explorer and adventurer Richard Francis Burton. I honestly don't have a ton of stuff to add. I think the guy's life told his story. It wasn't about one expedition or one discovery, but about the totality of his experiences and deeds. Still, I will leave you with a few comments about Burton, because that's the sort of thing that I do. In just about everything Burton did in his life, he was limited mostly by himself. His caustic, biting attitude grated on people. And a lot of people just didn't like him, and thus they threw obstacles in his path. Or they just didn't help him. In this world, you don't have to be liked to succeed, but you don't want to be disliked. That's when people actively work against you. Burton seems to have never figured that out. Still, I love Burton's attitude and spirit, even if it frustrates me as well. I love that he challenged convention and broke rules, but it's just stupid how many things he did that sabotaged his own career. As an explorer, Burton did some great things. The journey to Medina and Mecca, and then to Arar, and of course the discovery of Lake Tanganyika. But he again sabotaged himself in so many ways. Some of the mistakes could easily have been avoided with just a modicum of foresight. I mean, letting Speak go back to England ahead of him was foolish, and to not see the dangers was mind-boggling. In the end, Burton never rose into the upper echelons of famous explorers of the age, such as Henry Morton Stanley and Dr. David Livingston. He lacked that single great signature discovery. It could have been Lake Victoria, but Burton let that one slip out of his grip. Instead, he became more famous for his public feud with John Hanning's Speak. No matter, Burton's reputation would rise in the later years of his life and once he had passed away. It allowed the public to look at the totality of his work and say, hey, this guy did some amazing things. Plus, his enemies were dying off as well, leaving only a record of his deeds and not the personal vendettas and bruised egos and feelings. And with Burton, as I have said, his deeds are not just his geographic discoveries. It was also his work in linguistics, his writings, his translations, and so much more. As we look at his life, we see this insanely curious man, a man who loved to learn, and he wasn't afraid to dive into new things or question the status quo. In fact, he relished those opportunities. To have done what he had done was really amazing. Now, all of this said, I don't want to paint this overly rosy image of Burton. He had his warts. For all of his willingness to break rules and criticize his superiors, he never questions the place of his queen and the idea of a greater British empire, as well as his role as an Englishman. And while Burton could be incredibly open-minded, his writings are riddled with the typical attitudes of the time on race and colonialism. Virtually every race and religion is savaged, and at times, it's not pretty. So that is the life of Richard Francis Burton. I want to note some ways Burton has been remembered. First, there are a ton of books about Burton. To be honest, I never really found any single one that I thought best. I've quoted Byron Farwell's biography, written about 60 years ago, because it is one of the best with regards to sticking to the available source materials. But it is dated in some ways. And other books get into different realms of Burton's life. He's a complex man, and they want to understand his motivations and so forth. Some spend chapters talking about his interest in Islam or sexuality or whatever. I want to note that you can go to bertoniana.org, that's B-U-R-T-O-N-I-A-N-A.org, and you'll find all sorts of info about Burton's life. It also has a huge repository of all things Burton. You can read most of his books, see photos, that sort of thing. In the end, I want to stress that what I have shared is just a part of Burton's life, and I encourage you to read more on the guy. In popular culture, Burton has appeared in novels, comic books, movies, and TV shows. I mentioned the film The Mountains of the Moon in an earlier episode, but there's so much more. 
I'd check out Burton's Wikipedia page for a full list. Another classic bit of fiction associated with Burton is Rudyard Kipling's novel Kim. Published in 1901, Kim takes place against the backdrop of the Great Game, the political intrigue between Russia and Britain in Central Asia. It is believed that Kipling based his lead character on Burton. And with that, our tale nears an end. I will finish up by telling this personal story. For those of you who do not know me, I am 58 years old. I have always loved history, with explorers being one of my favorite topics. When I was around 12 or 13 years old, my late father dug out a couple of books he had in our basement. They were The White Nile and the Blue Nile by Australian author Alan Moorhead. It was here that I first read about Burton and all the explorers of the Nile River, and I love the guy. He took spears through the face, thumbed his nose at society, and marched into the unknown, nearly dying too many times to count. It was great stuff for a kid, and I'll never forget Burton after reading those stories. He is, to be honest, way more complex than I ever realized, and I want to thank you for indulging me a bit in this series by exploring the breadth of Burton's life and accomplishments, because I think without them, you don't do the guy justice. So again, thank you. Anyhow, final thing, if anyone ever asks you who was Richard Francis Burton, I hope you can answer by saying, Sir Richard Francis Burton, also known as Ruffian Dick, was an explorer, writer, scholar, soldier, diplomat, ethnologist, linguist, poet, fencer, and perhaps a spy. He spoke 29 languages, many fluently. He was one of the first Europeans to visit the holy city of Mecca, which he did in disguise. He explored extensively in Africa, including the Great Lakes District. He is acknowledged as the first Westerner to reach Lake Tanganyika, the sixth largest lake in the world. He wrote or translated more than 200 articles, books, and literary works over the course of his life. This included some controversial items, such as the Kama Sutra and the Arabian Nights. So there you go. Again, thanks to all of you for coming along on what was a special journey for me. I wish you all good health and happy thoughts. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Please go to airwavemedia.com to find other podcasts by leading storytellers and thought leaders in audio entertainment, including The Project Booth and Movie Therapy. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.